this is Scott Aniel, and you're listening to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Today, we're going to talk about what I like to call the theologic of biblical worship. We're going to see that God established a pattern for worship first at Mount Sinai, continuing in Israel's tabernacle and temple worship, all based on the true worship of heaven, which has established the historic pattern for church worship. We'll also look at a book that traces this kind of historic pattern, as well as an ancient Latin hymn that beautifully portrays the worship of heaven in which we Christians join. Let's begin with Sinai. Fifty days after the exodus from Egypt, the people of Israel arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God specifically set apart the worshiping community and gave instructions for how he desired to be worshipped. This was a formative time for Israel's worship and history. This encounter is on God's initiative. The people don't come on their own in order to attempt to get their God's attention. Rather, as we read in Exodus 19, the Lord called out to Moses out of the mountain. God himself called them to draw near to his presence. After giving Moses the law, God called Moses and Aaron and his sons and the elders and all the people to draw near to him to worship, Exodus 24.1. In verse 2, we read that the people had to remain at a distance, though, which emphasizes the fact that because of their sin, they could not fully come into the presence of God. For this very reason, this worship service continued with necessary ceremonies of consecration for the people. Moses presented God's rules to the people as a way to reemphasize their own sinfulness, and then he offered the necessary sacrifices of atonement so that they would be accepted. Verses 3 through 8 of Exodus 24 detail all of that. But then God communicated his approval. He communicated his acceptance of the people based on the atoning sacrifice. And when the leaders of the people saw the God of Israel and he did not lay his hand against them, they knew that they were accepted. Verses 9 through 11. And the ultimate expression of that fact that they were now welcome in his presence is that verse 11 tells us that they beheld God and ate and drank. A beautiful picture of communion. Well, later, after building the tabernacle according to the laws of God and consecrating the priests, the nation celebrated a similar worship service. And it's characterized by the same sort of theologic. They drew near and stood before the Lord, Leviticus 9.5 tells us. This gathering in God's presence was, again, based on God's initiative. It was dependent upon obedience to his directions, verse 6 says. It began with a general call to worship in verse 7, followed by a period in which Aaron and the priests offer atoning sacrifices on behalf of themselves and the people. Verses 23 through 24 of Leviticus 9 show the amazing revelation that God accepted their sacrifices, and he revealed this to them by displaying his glory, by consuming the sacrifice with fire from heaven. The people now knew that they were accepted by God because of the sacrifice. And following this period of God's revelation of himself and the people's sacrifice and God's affirmation of acceptance, the people listened to the book of the covenant as Moses read it in their hearing, we read in Exodus 24-7. And then they responded with, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then this worship service climaxed with an expression of the very essence of worship, once again, communion with God. God once again displayed his glory to the people, and they celebrated it by eating and drinking, Exodus 24, 11. 
In the ancient Near East, eating at someone's table signified that you were welcome and accepted. To, to eat and drink before the presence of God was a powerful statement that the people had gained acceptance with God, not through their own work, but through the means that he had established. And what these services of worship in the Old Testament show us is a progression, a theologic that really becomes the standard for worship of God's people from that time forward. It begins with God's desire for communion with the people that he has set apart. But because of their sinfulness, they cannot draw near to his presence. Yet he calls them to come, to draw near, and he provides the means for them to be able to at least partially draw near through a sacrifice of atonement. Once the people obey his specific commands for a sacrifice, God accepts them, albeit partially, and he speaks to them. And then the people respond with commitment and a visible celebration of their acceptance in God's presence in the form of a feast. And so you could summarize the theologic of both of these worship services at Sinai, and then once the tabernacle is built, with six movements. First, God reveals himself and calls his people. Second, God's people acknowledge and confess their need for forgiveness. Third, God provides atonement. Fourth, God speaks his word. Fifth, God's people respond with commitment. And then finally, climaxes with God hosting a celebratory feast. What we see is that that pattern continues through the rest of Scripture. And we're going to look more at that in a moment. But first, I want to highlight an ancient Latin hymn that perhaps you know, perhaps you don't know but is a wonderful expression of something that we're going to see later in this episode. And that is, as Christians, when we draw near to God to worship him, we are actually joining in with the worship of heaven. This ancient Latin hymn from the 4th century, translated into English, is titled, Holy God, We Praise Your Name. And it's a translation of a Latin prayer. It's a wonderful expression of worship in heaven. The opening stanza, once again translated into English, reads, Holy God, we praise your name. Lord of all, we bow before you. Saints on earth, your rule acclaim. All in heaven above adore you. Infinite, your vast domain, everlasting is your reign. And then after that introductory stanza, stanza two moves forward to talk about the angelic choirs surrounding the throne in worship to God. Stanza three talks about the apostolic train, the prophets, the white-robed martyrs, and the entire church praising the Lord around the throne in heaven. And then the final stanza is a wonderful Trinitarian expression of praise to the Lord. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, three we name you. Though in essence only one undivided God, we claim you. And adoring, bend the knee while we own the mystery. Wonderful expression. In essence only one but undivided God, three in persons, one in essence. If you'd like to download this hymn, I'd encourage you to visit classichymns.org and scroll down to Holy God, We Praise Your Name, and you can download free PDFs of this wonderful hymn. Well, as we've seen, there was a pattern set by God in the Old Testament, first at Sinai and then continuing in the dedication of the tabernacle. As we've seen, worship involves drawing near to communion with God, But since our sin prevents that, God establishes a means of atonement and cleansing by which we are enabled to draw near and hear his word, respond with obedience, and eat with him, commune with him. 
And the layout and progression of the tabernacle and later the temple pictured that. God reveals himself and calls his people. That's the temple entrance. God's people acknowledge and confess their need for forgiveness. That's the sin offering and the guilt offering and the burnt offering right there at the altar of atonement. God provides that atonement for his people then. God speaks his word. That's the reading of the law in the presence of the people. God's people respond with commitment. That could be expressed through something like the grain offering, a voluntary offering of uh, grain to the Lord as an expression of thanksgiving. And then God hosts a celebratory feast. The final offering that could be offered was the peace offering, not an offering that gains peace with God, but an offering that celebrates peace with God. And often the sacrificer would be given some of the meat to eat himself. Later, the liturgy of Solomon's dedication service of the temple resembles that same theologic of Israel's worship at Mount Sinai years earlier. God had instructed his people to worship in this fashion, and all that Solomon did was in obedience to God's commands. Once again, at Solomon's temple dedication, we see those same six movements. Now, why is that the case? Well, God commanded that the people build a sanctuary for him. He commanded the building of the temple and the tabernacle all the way back when he gave the law to Moses. And they built the tabernacle of God according to God's specific instructions. We find those instructions detailed at length in the books of Exodus and Numbers. This sanctuary of his presence, the Bible tells us, was not for his benefit. Solomon himself at the dedication said that God had no need for a house. But rather, the tabernacle and the temple were for the people's benefit. This sanctuary of God's presence provided a place where sinners were given the means necessary to draw near to the holy presence of God for communion with him. And as we've seen, the very layout and structure represented the core necessities for this kind of communion to be possible. And even more than that, Exodus 25 explains that God gave Moses the exact pattern for the tabernacle. And Hebrews 8.5 confirms that this pattern was based on the heavenly sanctuary. And so the instructions for the earthly sanctuary of God were not arbitrary. They reflect and picture the heavenly realities of God's dwelling place. And so this implies that the specific details of the tabernacle are not unimportant even for the church today. Certainly the ceremonies pass away, the sacrifices pass away because of Christ, but the layout, the progression, and the details of this Old Testament worship image spiritual heavenly realities. And therefore, they have direct application for our theology of worship and even for our practice of worship today. We're going to look at that pattern of heavenly worship in a moment. But first, I want to highlight a book that traces this sort of pattern in Scripture and then shows how that pattern continued in the historic liturgies of God's people. This book is by Brian Chapel, published in 2009, and the title is Christ-Centered Worship, Letting the Gospel Shape Our Practice. The underlying assumption of Chapel's book is that the structure of our liturgies, the structure of our worship orders, carry meaning. And therefore, a Christian liturgy should communicate the message of the gospel. Chapel argues, whether one intends it or not, our worship patterns always communicate something. He wants to sidestep the prevalent debates about worship today and urge church leaders to allow the gospel to shape our worship. Not only the content, 
but also the structure of our worship. Chapel begins in the first six chapters by comparing and contrasting the most influential Christian liturgies in the history of the church. He starts with medieval liturgy before Roman Catholicism at Trent, then Martin Luther's liturgy, chapter 3, then John Calvin's liturgy, then the liturgy of the Westminster Directory of Public Worship, and then modern worship. And while he demonstrates that these various liturgies certainly differ as they reflect the specifics of the theological systems in which they operate, Chapel's aim is to show that where the truths of the gospel are maintained, there remain commonalities of worship structure that transcend culture. He shows that no matter the difference, each liturgy contains common elements. Adoration, confession, assurance, thanksgiving, petition, instruction, charge, and blessing. And not only are all the elements common, but their progression also remains consistent among the liturgies. Chapel argues that this is the case because each liturgy reflects the pattern of the progress of the gospel in the heart. A person recognizes the greatness of God, that's adoration, which leads him to see a need for confession of sin. He then receives assurance of pardon in the gospel through the merits of Christ, and then he responds with thanksgiving and petition. God gives his word, that's instruction, leading to a charge to obey its teaching and a promise of blessing. What he argues is that that common liturgical structure tells the story of the gospel, representing the gospel each time God's people worship. And then Chapel continues in chapter 7 by demonstrating that this liturgical structure is present not only in historic liturgies, but also, as we have seen, in scriptural examples. And he looks at some of the same examples that we've seen. And he illustrates that in each case, these same common liturgical elements appear in progression. And by walking a worship path in step with the redemptive rhythm, he says, we simultaneously discover the pattern for our liturgy and the grace of our Savior. So this leads Chapel to insist that where the gospel is honored, it shapes our worship. No church, he argues, true to the gospel, will fail to have echoes of these historic liturgies. And then the second half of the book, Chapel provides really helpful resources for the implementation of this sort of Christ-centered worship, uh, specific examples of the various components like call to worship and affirmation of faith and confession of sin. He gives examples of service orders across a broad spectrum of traditions and lots of resources that are very helpful for scripture readings and preaching and music. So I highly recommend this book, Christ-Centered Worship, in which Brian Chapel presents a really engaging exploration of how the gospel should shape Christian worship. And we've seen that this is the pattern of worship in scripture in the Old Testament, a pattern that was not arbitrary but a pattern that was modeled after the worship of heaven. And so as we Christians consider this pattern, it's valuable for us to look at the worship of heaven. And of course, God has given us two passages that do just that. The first is found in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is given a vision of the worship of heaven. God reminds Isaiah through this vision of the pattern upon which pure earthly worship was supposed to be based. God called Isaiah up into the heavenly temple itself where he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, verse 1 of chapter 6, and surrounding God with a seraphim singing, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. And the sight of God in all of his holiness and splendor caused Isaiah to recognize his own sin, to recognize his unworthiness to draw near to the presence of God in his temple. 
And so Isaiah responded by confessing his sin before the Lord. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yet God did not simply expel Isaiah from the temple due to his impurity. Rather, God provided means of atonement. One of the seraphim took a burning coal from the altar and placed it on Isaiah's lips. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now Isaiah was welcome in the presence of God by the means God himself had provided. And standing accepted in God's presence, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord giving him a message to which Isaiah willingly offered obedience. And then God sent Isaiah forth with that message of both instruction and blessing to the nation of Israel. This pattern of heavenly worship was the same basic order that the people of Israel had followed when they worshipped God at Mount Sinai, after the construction of the tabernacle, and at the dedication of the temple. And this picture of worship is also seen in the book of Revelation with the heavenly worship we find there. Revelation 4 and 5, we find the worship of heaven that begins with a call to worship. Come up here, verse 1 says followed by a vision of God himself and the angels singing once again, holy, 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 and hymns of praise for God creating all things, chapter 4, verse 11. Then follows the presentation of the scroll that reveals the unworthiness of the people to open it, chapter 5. Except for the Lamb, he who provided atonement and ransomed a people for God, verses 5 through 12. The people then respond with a doxology and a choral amen by the four living creatures, verses 13 through 14. And then most of the rest of the book of Revelation foretells God's word being opened as he enacts his plans for humankind. And then the response of God's people in the form of praise and service. You see that through chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. And then the book of Revelation climaxes with the great marriage supper of the Lamb, chapter 19, when a great multitude will sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The heavenly temple will descend, and for the first time, God's ultimate intention for his people will come to full realization. Chapter 21, verse 3 reads, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The purpose of humankind was communion in the presence of God for his glory. And in that day, the purpose will come to pass. And so the structure of worship and revelation is the same as it has been since the beginning. God reveals himself and calls his people to worship. God's people acknowledge and confess their need for forgiveness. God provides atonement. God speaks his word. God's people respond with commitment, and God hosts a celebratory feast. From creation to consummation, the corporate worship of God's people is a memorial, a reenactment of the theologic of true worship. God's call for his people to commune with him through the sacrifice of atonement that he has provided, listening to his word and responding with praise and obedience. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. That helps to spread the word. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash I blog at religiousaffections.org. 
And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.